You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. <clears throat> well, good morning. Um, hope you're enjoying your weekend. I hope that you guys had a good week that was uh, leading up to this weekend. Uh, as Chris said, my name is Alex Fabian, and I do have the pleasure to serve as our student ministries director alongside an incredible team of leaders that gather every Saturday for high school and on Wednesdays for middle school. Um, I'm actually coming up on three-year anniversary uh, in just a few weeks, so I'm really excited and, and grateful to have been part of this church family for three years. Um, my, my wife and I just really love that our kids get to grow up here and, and serve at the church as well. Um, we're going to continue on in Luke this morning. I'm very excited for these passages in Luke. They talk a lot about anxiety, talk a lot about worry. And I have a history of anxiety in my life. I have a history of worrying in my life. And it really wasn't until I started to take ownership of that anxiety and take ownership of that worry in my life and talk to people that knew a little bit more than I did and maybe were a little bit further on in their battles or journeys with anxiety that I started to replace the lies that I believed with truths. And I think that this passage is incredible because not only does Jesus identify a problem, he gives us a solution. And normally I feel like when people talk to us and they say, hey, don't be worried or don't be anxious. That immediately makes them more anxious and immediately makes them more worried. But Jesus is able to do this in such a way that, again, he not only identifies a worry that we can probably all relate to, he gives us something to replace that worry with, something more worthwhile. And I certainly hope that as we move into this holiday season and holidays are, are maybe difficult for so many of us, I, ho I hope that you find some comfort in these verses because they really do have a lot of biblical truths that we can carry into all seasons of our life. So with that, let's uh, read our text. It's Luke chapter 12. Uh, it's 22 through 34, and it'll be found in your pew Bible on page 871. If you guys would stand with me as we read through this text. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And, where, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom.
We thank you that you know of our necessities and our essentials in our lives, and we pray, Lord, that we would feel your compassion for us, your love for us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be released in this room and that we are able to fully understand all that you have for us through this text. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So when I first got excited to, to teach by Pastor Chris, I was, you know, a little nervous, as you may imagine. But again, I, I quickly got over that as I read these texts, and, and I, started to, I started to read this text and started to realize that for so long in my life, I believed that I had this anxiety-shaped hole in my heart, and that nothing could ever fill it except for anxiety. I was so convinced that this was just my lot in life and that I would struggle with this for the rest of my life, the same as I have brown hair and blue eyes. It was just part of my makeup as a person. But then I started to realize as I grew in my faith and started to understand the truths that Jesus communicates to us, that he can fit into any hole that we feel in our lives. That it doesn't mean that just because I struggle with this now, I'm going to continue to struggle with this. And it wasn't until I was able to replace those lies with the truth, so many of the truths that, were, that we just read through, that I was able to move forward in my life. And so, as Jesus is teaching us this section, as we talked about last week, he's, he's tying this section into the parable of the rich fool. He uses this word, therefore. And this word therefore means as a result of my prior teaching on materialism and the pursuit of more or of a surplus, don't worry about all that you have. Worry about what I've given you. Steward that. Take care of that because I will give you exactly what you need. Now, my anxieties and my worries didn't necessarily focus on this. I didn't grow up worrying about these kinds of things. My anxieties were more situational and and different things like that, but it wasn't too long ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he was telling me of an upcoming trip that he was taking to Disney World with his, his family. And as he was telling me, he was sharing with me the excitement of, of seeing, you know, his kids' faces light up as they saw all the, the Magic Kingdom and Mickey and Minnie and all those things, and I couldn't help but think about my own kids going to Disney World. I couldn't help but think about their faces and just the excitement that was on there. And as I was thinking about that, I, I started to get this sinking feeling. What if, what if I'm never able to provide a way to Disney World? What if we're never in a financial position in our lives where we're able to go to Disney World? And as these thoughts started to chase them around each other in my head, I started to think, well, if, if I can't bring my kids to Disney World, does that make me a good, a good dad or a bad dad? If I'm, if I'm not able to do this, does that mean I'm, I'm not a good husband because I, I can't provide? And, and it sounds silly, and it, it's a silly thought, it's, but, it, but in the moment, it was so real. And again, anxiety and, and worry take us out of our realities and just replace all of the lies, all of the truths that we believe with lies. And so as I was going down this path of just focusing on all of this, I stopped thinking about all that God had given us. I stopped thinking about the house that we live in and the clothes that my kids have and the food that are in their bellies or on the floor because they're toddlers. <laughs> I started to realize, like, I, if I don't go to Disney World, that's not going to make me a bad husband. If I, don't, if I don't ever provide for my family to go, that doesn't, that doesn't make me a bad dad. But you know what? I, I also realized if I never go to Disney World, that's okay. It's okay, too, because my kids will never not know the love that I have for them. 
My kids will never not know the love that the Father has for them. And luckily, just a few weeks after I had this fear, Disney Plus came out. So now we have all the magic in the comfort of our living room. But it is this sort of self-identifying worry and anxiety that Jesus warns us against. So let's dive into the text. It starts out by saying, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you'll eat or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Jesus identifies three essentials, life, eating, and our bodies. These things we need in order to live and be productive members of society and continue to grow and and all of these things. And yet, Jesus is identifying how essential they are. And he's saying, don't even worry about these things. Now, is Jesus commanding us or telling us or encouraging us to stand naked in our homes and just pray that he'll clothe us, feed us, and make us healthy? Certainly not. He's saying, do not find your worth in an abundance. Just like he talked to the rich man, do not find a worth in an abundance. Realize all that you have is a gift from God. The necessities of life are a gift from God. So I want to identify and emphasize three uh, parts of this text. So the first one is, is this. It says, consider the ravens. They do not sow, nor do they reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. Notice, this is, this is not a question. This is an emphatic statement that Jesus is making. He asks the question next. He says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this thing, why worry about the rest? Now, once again, as Jesus does, he's, he has this incredible relationship with rhetorical questions. You know, since you cannot do this thing, why do you worry about the rest? He's recalling us again back to the parable, driving home this idea of storerooms, filling barns, all of those things. That's that's not your pursuit. He's saying, trust me, find your worth, find your good pleasure in all that I've provided you and replace those fears with peace and joy. Here we see this question, who can add to their life? And when we think about this question and we consider this question, we see that Jesus is reminding us of the story of our position in creation. I believe that our position in creation is him as the creator and us as creation. He's inviting us through this question to find rest in him as the creator of the universe. And he's saying, hey, listen, I got this. I got this. Remember when I freed the Israelites and I fed them in the desert? Remember when I healed all of those people and, and remember when I raised Lazarus from the dead and I fed 5,000 with so few? Cast your cares upon me because I have this. Jesus is reminding us that he is our creator, he is our redeemer, and most importantly, he's our sustainer. And moving into verses 32, 27 through 32, we see a direct comparison of the creation. So this creation theme continues on. It says, consider how the lilies grow. These lilies do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was ever dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, I love these verses because I just see the creation story written all through it. A couple years ago, I was in a Bible study, and we reread through the story of creation, and I had taken classes on it, and I had studied it differently, but... I was at a position in my life to read it differently 
And for the first time, I started to, to think a lot about the verses where it talks about God creating us. So the first promise that we see in the Bible is God saying, and I will make them in my image, and so he does. But when you compare the creation of man versus the creation of everything else, it's incredible. He spoke, and everything happened. All the birds of the air, all the fish of the sea, plants, animals, all kinds of incredible things, he just spoke, and it happened. But when he considered creating man, he stopped speaking, and he started doing. And, and I like to picture God as, as just gathering up dust and just painstakingly putting man together in his image, taking off a little bit here, adding some there, and just not being satisfied and not resting until he accomplished his main goal, which was to create an image bearer. I've always imagined God just delighting in that, just really taking his time and, and just making sure that it was exactly what he wanted. He then put us in charge of caring for and stewarding all the rest of his creations. One of those creations is talked about here. It's, it talks about the lilies. And the lilies that they're talking about here are actually called scarlet anemones or anemones. Or an, I'm not a botanist, but the point is, is that these are, are scarlet anemones. They're from the hills of Palestine. And these lilies were such that when they would bloom after one of the infrequent rain showers, they would bloom only for a day. They would literally bloom for one day. And when they bloomed, they would light up the hills with scarlet. So clearly, God's an OSU fan. <laughs> but these lilies, as beautiful as they were and as, as magnificent as they were, they were totally vulnerable. And this would have resonated and made sense with the audience that, God, that Jesus was speaking to. It makes sense to us. Flowers, as pretty as they may be when we buy them or we have them in our house, they don't last very long. And if God is saying, listen, you are worth more these lilies are worth more than Solomon in all of his splendor, than Solomon in all of his money. It starts to make sense. This Solomon guy was extravagant. He was so rich. There are some people that estimate that Solomon's net worth in today's money would be right around $2.2 trillion. And yet, those lilies were worth more. God has taken care and he's taken delight in creating these Beautiful, amazing wildflowers. Now, the full understanding of the comparison comes when we start to put those wildflowers against human beings. Again, Solomon was a notable comparison because he was so rich that he could dress himself in whatever he wanted. He had more money in his clothing, was worth more than I certainly am. He could probably take his kids to Disney World. But he says, listen, that food... That, that, that clothing is just food for the moths. That clothing that he spent so much time on is, is not worth as much to Solomon as you are to me. And I think he says that because he made it. I think he rejoices over it and he says, I made that. And it's beautiful. When I was a kid growing up, my grandfather was, was my best friend. He's my hero. And he was a carpenter his whole life. And so he used to make things with his hands. And I remember when I was a kid... I begged him to help me make this workbench. He had one in his wood shop, and it was the coolest thing ever. And so finally, we made one together, and it was terrible. <laughs> this thing had like 14 support beams, and it still wobbled, even if you just looked at it. But after me and my grandpa were done making it, I loved it. It was the coolest thing ever, because we made it together. 
And I think when we make something with our hands, even if it's not as beautiful as we would have hoped, or certainly not as beautiful as something from the store, we take pride in it. And we can show it off because we made it. And when Jesus is speaking these words, he's taking pride in us, the crown jewel of his creation, because he made us. It wasn't really until I started to understand this thought process that the creator of the universe who spoke and everything came into be and then formed me with his hands, breathed life into me, and put his image in me, that I started to have a real turning point in my battles against worry and anxiety. And I think when our realization of our creation and our calling intersect, we start to have freedom from so many things that hold us back. And furthermore, when Jesus suggests that he's going to clothe us, it's more than just actual physical clothing. It's the identity that he's going to give us. He'll clothe us with an identity that we are his. We are made in his image, and we are inherently worth more than any other aspect of creation. In these verses, Jesus is truly giving us a lesser to greater comparison. And as we read them, we ought to pray over them and and ask that God would give us enough faith to recognize them and believe them and allow them to change our lives. As we move on, it says, And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. When Jesus instructs his listeners not to seek what they are to eat or drink, this doesn't mean that we should neglect to support ourselves. It doesn't mean that we should not take care of the little things and, and, and do all of those things. It's a warning against continually seeking after anything in our lives instead of what we should seek after. Jesus is saying that our focus on anything other than what we ought to focus on is going to result in more worry. And as you worry about those things, worry is going to feed worry. So, We've seen that Jesus has identified a problem. He's identified a problem that we all can relate to. And what's incredible about these these statements, what's incredible about these things is that he offers us a solution. So my second point of emphasis is this. It says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If our pursuit on this earth is to seek his kingdom, he promises us that we will find it. And in that kingdom, we don't have to worry about our clothing. We don't have to worry about eating because we'll be filled. We don't have to worry about money or possessions or keeping things stored up because we're going to have enough. The kingdom that Jesus is talking about, it's not some far-off kingdom. It's not some place that we go to after we're done here on this earth. It's not something that we'll journey towards and work for for the rest of our lives. And hopefully if we pray hard enough and do enough good deeds that we'll get there, it's a kingdom, it's a reality that we can access here and now on this earth. This little sentence is an invitation to the, fa- to the Father. It's a statement that you can have the fullness of the glory of God here on this earth. This kingdom is a state in which God's will is as perfectly done as it is in heaven here on this earth. And then Jesus makes us a life-changing statement. And I think this statement that Jesus is making is really what allows us to have trust in him. He's saying, listen, I've identified you have worries. I've given you an alternative. And now I'm going to give you reason to believe in this alternative and to really fully put trust in him. And what's more, I think certainly when we have relationships with people, whether we love them and have known them for years, sometimes trust is a hard thing. I think Jesus is relating 
with us in that. And he's saying, I'm going to make it okay for you to trust me. And so my third emphasis is this, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I just, I love this fear not, little flock. I just, I just think that that really shows us the characteristic of Jesus. It shows us who we are also. Again, we see Jesus inviting us to lay down our fears, replace them with his provision. You know, sometimes I really think this might be one of the hardest parts of being a Christian. How could we, in all of our sin, our misery, our anxieties, our fears, our worries, and all the things that we struggle with, how could we be loved? How could we be known by the Creator? How could He want us? How could He desire us and care for us and call us His little flock? Why does God want a relationship with me? But as we see through the Scripture, from the beginning of creation to the end of time, there's one truth. It's God's delight. It's God's good pleasure for us to be with Him. It's a character trait of God. It's a bold statement about our God that, that He's not so grandiose that He forgets about the little flocks. He's ever-present in our times of suffering. He's ever-present in our times of being frozen in fear and anxiety. And He wants nothing more than to set us free from whatever holds us back and allow us to experience His goodness. You know, as, a, as once I became a Christian and, and started to really learn about my faith, I fundamentally knew this about God. I was taught it at church, and I spent time in church on Sunday mornings in Bible studies, and so I fundamentally knew this about God. But it wasn't until I had children that I started to experience it. I've been reminded time and time again of the love that the Father has for me through my children. And I don't think uh, there's any better example of this than when my daughter, Harper, who is three years old and perfect, um, she, she had a seizure. And it was, it was one of the most terrifying moments of our, mine and my wife Heather's lives. And it, was, it took us so far out of our reality. So she woke up, uh, my daughter Harper woke up in the middle of the night and complained that she had a headache. And so we took her temperature, and lo and behold, she had a fever. So the next morning, I was able to rearrange some meetings, and I was able to stay home with, with my wife to help take care of Harper. And we just couldn't get her fever to break. We gave her Tylenol, we gave her Motrin, we even gave her a bath. And once we were finally able to get her comfortable and, and lay her down so she could take a nap, I was able to lay with her for a little bit. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to my, my afternoon meeting. Everything's going to be okay. I'm going to leave. And so I kissed Harper goodbye, and she said, love you, Daddy. And I said, love you, too. And I left. And I got about five minutes from my house, and my wife calls me, and she goes, just crying, hysterically. She goes, you need to get home right now. Harper's acting weird. And I just pulled a U-turn. And if you were behind me, I apologize. But <laughs> I just got, I just whipped my car around, and, and I start driving home. And so in that meantime, um, my wife had called our pediatrician, and she was trying to explain the symptoms, trying to explain what was happening with Harper, and, and they were like, just bring her here to the pediatrician's office. It's a half a mile down the road from our house. Bring her here. We'll take a look at her, and we'll help you through it. And so she had loaded Harper up to the car, and so she pulls out of our driveway, and I pull in. I was home with our boys, and she goes to the doctor, and I start getting these cryptic text messages. She, you know, it's, she's like, uh, doctor's in with her now. She's doing 
doing some tests. And then she goes, they're calling a squad. And I was like pacing around my house, going back and forth. And I, just, I didn't know anything. I was totally, totally unaware of what was happening. All I knew was that Harper had a temperature and now they're calling an ambulance. And so I jump, out of my, I, I, I jump up from the couch and I run out of my house to my neighbor's house. And for some reason, my neighbor was home that Friday. She works full-time job. She was home that Friday and she was outside working outside. It was a, it was a nice day. And I was like, Mallory, I need you to come over to my house. My daughter Harper had a seizure. They took her in the neighbors. You need to come. She's like, what? And I'm like, see ya. And I left. <laughs> and um, so <clears throat> I get in the car and I'm driving to the hospital and I was obeying all the speed limits and, and, and traffic things. And I'm on Fishinger or Fishinger, which depending on which side of Burlington you're from. And I'm, I'm on Fishinger Road and, and there's two lanes there's two lanes on each side. And so I'm going this way and I see a police officer about 600 yards in front of me and I think, perfect. So I floor it to catch up to the police officer and as I pulled parallel to him, he started to turn onto a road called North Star which is one way this way and one way the other way. And so he started to turn and I, um, I, I pulled him over. I cut him off. <laughs> and I'm not proud of this. But in a moment of total chaos and panic, I rolled my window down and yelled, my daughter just got taken to the hospital in an ambulance. Can you give me a police escort? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, no. <clears throat> so I rolled my window up and I said, fine. And I just took off. So I, I get on 315 and, and again, going the speed limit, and I was, I was driving down, and I, 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 get to, um, I get to the exit, I get off the exit, and I started to get some text messages from, from Heather. She's like, hey, you know, Harper's starting to do a little bit better, and she sends me this text message that says they're, they're no longer worried about her life, but they're going to bring her to the hospital. And so I said, okay, perfect. So I'm going to the hospital, and I get to the hospital, I park, and where, where I parked at Nationwide Children's Hospital, there is the emergency vehicle entrance, right? And so I see an ambulance, and I think, well, I know how long it takes me to get there. I should take the same. So I was convinced that that was my daughter's ambulance, because there's only one. And <laughs> I, I, I get out of the car. I jump over some hedges, most athletic I've ever been in my life. And I get there, and I throw the ambulance door open, and I go is my daughter in here? And the guy goes, no. And, and so I slam the door and I take off and I, I'm going to the information desk and this is where it gets good. And so <clears throat> I'm running as fast as I can and these, these two very kind looking nurses are, are leaving the hospital, presumably after a long day, and they see this lunatic just sprinting at them. So they jump out of the way, and I think, oh, I should not scare people. So I cut around, and at Nationwide Children's Hospital, you go down, and then you kind of have to turn, le turn left and then go right. But I didn't want to do that. I cut through their beautiful landscaping. So I jump over a hedge, and I'm making my way through, uh, like, ivy, you know, like ground coverage, you know what I'm talking about? And some of you have seen where this is going. And as I was about a foot away, my foot um, caught a root. And so I'm running, and I get the speed wobbles, you know? And I think to myself, tuck and roll. And so I tuck, I hit the ground, and I spring back up and keep going. 
And there was a poor family that had gotten there probably with a sick kid, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's fine. So I run inside, and I'm all out of breath, and I just, I'm covered in vegetation, and I get to the security guard, right? And I'm like, my daughter's here. She's like, what? And I'm like, my daughter's here. She's in an ambulance. I need your help. And she looks at me, and she goes, it's going to be okay. I was like, you're so calm. And she, she's like, it's going to be okay. Give me your stuff. We'll put you through. Go to the information desk, and they'll find out where your daughter is. And I said, okay. So I go through. I go through the, the security. I go up to the desk, and I'm talking to the lady, and I'm like, my daughter's name is Harper Fabian. She was taken here in an ambulance. Do you know where she is? And so she looks it up, and she goes, they'll be here in 20 minutes. And I said, what? <laughs> what I didn't know at the time was that my daughter started to respond around the time that the EMTs got to the doctor's office. She started to uh, respond. My wife was able to fully convey and explain everything that was going on. And they said, okay, they did some preliminary tests. And then they put her in the ambulance without lights and sirens. So as she got there, my, my daughter gets there. The doctor comes in, checks her out, diagnosed her which, with is what's called a febrile seizure, gives us some medicine, spends some time with us, and um, my daughter at this point got hungry, and so I was walking through the, the hospital to get her some snacks, and as I was walking through the hospital, I was just thinking, like, this is such a wild day. This is just insane, and, and I was caught up in my own thoughts, and all of a sudden, I hear this voice. I hear this lady say, hey, how's your daughter? And I was like, what do you mean, how's my daughter? Do you have some system, like some network to know? Is she okay? What do you mean, how is it? She goes, I was the security guard. I was the security guard that you first interacted with. She had been stationed at a different post. And she says to me, she goes, you were really worried about your daughter. Is she okay? Now, I don't, I don't know this security guard. I still don't know this security guard. But in that moment, she saw the urgency with which I pursued my daughter. And I believe firmly and completely, I am spiritually convinced that if we could see the way that our God pursues us and perceive, perceive the way that our God pursues others, we would have no doubt about his character. We'd have no doubt about his love and no doubt that we belong to his flock. Our God is a God that leaves the 99 to pursue the one. His love knows no bounds. I know that our God is a God that meets us in the middle of our misery. He is one that engages with us in our worry and our anxiety, and he desires for us to be freed from it and gives us an alternative, his kingdom. You know, when we engage with others, it often comes up that they struggle with anxiety or we're talking about our own struggles with anxiety. We have these conversations often, whether it's worry and anxiety about money, family things, situations, whatever it may be. And we talk about these things often. And, and most of the time, our reaction is to pray with them or for them. And I think that's great. And, and I think it's a fantastic thing. It's certainly been beneficial in my life when others have prayed with me and for me. But what would it look like if in those moments when a person is being as vulnerable with us as they can be to share those depths of their fears, what would it look like 
if we were able to remind them that they were the crown jewel of God's creation, what would it look like if we as believers and champions of our friends were able to remind them that there was a God that loves them and pursues them? What would it look like if our conversations went from us talking about how to hold on to God to reminding others how he is the one that really holds on to us? And I think that there are some very biblical, very important biblical truths in verses 33 and 34 as we continue on that Jesus wants his disciples and his listeners to know. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You know, the reality is, is that our money can't save us. On that day that I do maybe buy tickets to go to Disney World, it's not going to make my kids love me more. They can't. I've asked them. They love me the most. <laughs> it won't make my wife love me more. I don't think she can either. The reality is, is it's not through purchasing a ticket that we get to heaven. We don't purchase our way to heaven. So many of us work our whole lives trying to accumulate something that's not going to last. But when we endeavor to work hard and we put our hope in the things that will last forever, the things that we pursue here on this earth become so much less significant, so much less important to us. Those things that we pursue here on this earth, they will wither and they will die. Those clothes that Solomon had, food for the moths. No thief can ever steal the joy that lies in us when we enter into his kingdom. No thief can ever snatch us from the embrace of the Father as he welcomes us in. Nothing will ever take away our forgiveness. Nothing will ever take away our grace. Nothing will ever take us away from the adoption that we have to the Father. As we come to a close this morning and the band makes its way back up, I want to ask a question to you. I want to ask a question to you in light of this last section of Scripture, these last verses in this section. The last section says, where your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And my question is this, what are you praying for? What you're praying for is a good litmus test to see where your treasure is and where your heart is. It's a great way for us to consider and then reconsider our priorities. The treasure that Jesus is talking about in verse 34 is in fact his kingdom, which again is his good pleasure to give us. As Jesus stood before his disciples, he said to them, put your hopes in me. Put your fears, your successes, your failures, your doubts, your worries, put it all into me and put it all into the kingdom. And I love that Jesus turns from the crowds and addresses his disciples when he says this, because these were 12 young men that gave up so much to be with him. And he's consistently inviting them to go with him. He's standing before all of us, and he's saying, walk with me. Put your heart in my kingdom, because I will give you treasures beyond anything you could ever hope to accomplish, and that treasure that you store up, the treasure that you keep in your storehouses, in your barns, it's only going to lead to more worry. But my treasure, that's my good pleasure to give to you, it's everlasting. And in that treasure, you will find peace. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we come before you and we thank you for the undeniable truth that you love us, that you call us sons and daughters. Father, we pray that we're taken from a place of fear 
and anxiety and worry, and we land firmly and completely in your kingdom. Father, you are such a good God, and it's our great pleasure to declare that in this room tonight, today, and we just pray that we would continue that as we leave this place, that the love that you have would continue to permeate our hearts and our minds, and that we will be set free from our worry and our anxiety. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.